There are three types of people in this world. Those that watch science fiction shows, those that write works of science fiction, and those that turn science fiction into reality. Dr. George Wicks is the latter. He's been at the crossroads of basic research and applied science for several decades and has influenced many of the innovations we take for granted. His work has made us safer, protected the environment, and enhanced human health. But he isn't done yet. He's just getting started. The fact is, he's the most optimistic about the disruptive power of his latest breakthrough, microspheres. The science is dense, but the applications are real and accessible. So let's square up and give this our best shot. These tiny microspheres are game changers, potentially one of the biggest deals and at the smallest scale. Let's get underway and see how they will shape the future across the globe. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. My name is George Wicks. I have the pleasure of being CTO of the Applied Research Center here in Aiken, South Carolina. Well, part of my job and mission here is to take some of the technologies that were developed at the Savannah River uh, National Laboratory in the Savannah River site, where I happen to have worked for about 40 years before retiring, and to see if we can take some of those one-of-a-kind technologies that were used to solve problems, and to take that technology another level, to tailor the technology, and to see if this taxpayer-funded research can also be used to generate either products or services that help people on our surrounding communities in our state and in our nation as well. So we get to work with cutting edge research and we have a lot of fun doing it. So I have a friend that works at the Savannah River Nuclear Laboratory and every time I ask him what he does or what they do there, he tells me he can't tell me. So Laura, maybe you can tell me what they do there? The Savannah River site was constructed in the early 1950s to produce the basic materials necessary in the fabrication of nuclear weapons. And even five reactors were also built in an effort to produce these materials for our nation's defense programs. Um, SRNL, it's evolved way past that, and it's now designated as the only national laboratory for the Department of Energy's Office of Environmental Management and the nation's only complete nuclear materials management facility. So what do they do? So SRNL works to solve really complex problems, um, such as the detection of weapons of mass destruction, the cleanup of contaminated groundwater and soils, the development of hydrogen as an energy source, the needs for a viable national defense, and the safe management of hazardous materials. So they keep us safe. Hopefully. So we, George, so we met with George Wicks, and he was a part of ARC. Uh, now, ARC works to commercialize a lot of the IP from SRNL, right? Well, how do, t Laura, can you explain kind of how the two organizations work? Yeah, so ARC uh, was set up in 2006. Uh, its mission has expanded to encompass a 
broader needs of government academia. And also, of course, don't ever leave out the private sector. Um, it's a physical facility that's got some really actually amazing equipment inside of it. We'll get to later. Uh, but it's to really help commercialize and get technologies that have been created within um, the Savannah River site actually out into the industry application. Gotcha. So they're all about sort of taking some of the basic research that has been conducted and applying it. Correct. And, and George told us, you know, about some really compelling innovations they've had there. What type of technologies to identify is really a, a good question or a good thing to think about. There are many, many different technologies. Uh, they fall into two basic classes. One of those are technologies that remain in-house because of the nature of the work. But then there's other technologies that are multi-use technologies. Not dual-use, but multi-use. And that simply means that if that technology was used to uh, and altered, it could solve not only nuclear-related problems, but perhaps could also solve other types of problems and that's exemplified in the areas of the porous wall hollow glass microspheres that we are doing a lot of work on and are in about a dozen different areas and also in addition to the new types of products there's also new kinds of processing technologies and we have one here that's a one-of-a-kind also and that's called hybrid microwave technology which can do some very unusual things to materials especially very hazardous materials hybrid microwave piece that you just mentioned because uh, you know we've been talking about the microspheres what is that what does it do to well, do uh, you see this unit right over here yeah that's one of a kind let me give you an example i can take your home microwave you have in your kitchen i can gut it out and hybridize it which means then i can actually go up to 2000 degrees centigrade in your home <laughs> micrograde now what you see up on the top here is that we formed a chamber here and a special unit for the department of uh, uh, justice and the fbi and what we've been able to do is to use this technology for destroying pathogens chemical and biological agents we destroy them in a matter of minutes but we can also retain the dna signatures okay now that's important so okay. for a forensic standpoint? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it so is. Like, would something like that be, I'm just seeing it's relatively compact too, you might want to put it in a vehicle or at an airport? Yeah, or? Very, you're right on target because it provides a means of bringing the technology to the problem okay. instead of vice versa. Gotcha. And you eliminate then the areas of uh, transportation, which is a safety situation and liability. If it's like infectious medical waste, there's a liability associated okay. with it as well. Great. But yes, indeed. Uh, so you mentioned microspheres. Tell me a little bit more about that research. Quite a while ago, some years ago at the Savannah River National Laboratory here, we had some uh, challenges involving the handling of tritium, a radioactive form of hydrogen. And so the existing technology simply wouldn't solve the problem. So we kind of came up with our own technology and old equipment to make the new types of materials as well. And what it involved was making tiny, tiny little glass bubbles whose diameter is roughly one third the diameter of a human hair. The microspheres are glass, they are hollow inside, they can range from a few microns in diameter to 100 microns across, and the shells themselves are very thin, about one micron, which is about 10,000 angstroms thick. The unique feature that differentiates these microspheres from any others is the fact there's a process in glass science called phase-phase separation or spinole decomposition. We found a way through chemistry and physics of glasses to phase separate two different glass chemistries in that thin outer shell of only one micron and then to orient that. Once you do that, you then can use thermal treatments and chemical treatments for 
stimulating it, making it larger, and then leaching it away. And when you do that, you're left with a network of little bitty holes or I-20s going into the microsphere that range in size from 100 to 1,000 angstroms. Since that time, we've been able to take those holes, we've been able to put things inside the microspheres, including gases, including liquids, and including solids as well. We even have ways to open and close the holes or gate the holes as well through certain types of processes that we've been able to develop. So once you are able to put things inside, in the case of the original challenge we had, we put in palladium metal that was able to absorb the gaseous components we had. We've done that some others as well, and we've also grown new kinds of nanostructures on the inside of the microspheres as well. Once you have the cargo inside, we have also developed ways of releasing it on demand. We can release it all at once by external means of, say, popping the bubbles by ultrasonics or Dopplers or other types of techniques. And then we developed other types of coatings and all that go on the outside of the microspheres for medical purposes and cancer therapy, where we can then dissolve away them very slowly. And we've got as, as long as a, a two-week delivery of the contents very, very slow. And for tumors, for example, that could be very, very important. If you give a big dose to the tumor, it does a good job of killing the tumor, but it unfortunately kills all the stuff around it. Too slow, it means you have to go in there too many times. That's not desirable. And so we have out now to about two weeks. That's not enough time, but it's very exciting. And in our intellectual property and patents and all, uh, we have focused on areas, especially pediatric cancers and leukemias and lymphomas. So we're very excited about the possibility because of ARC being here, we're able to pursue those, those areas. And uh, we hope to make a difference in the lives of at least some people. To recap, these microspheres that George and his team have developed are very, very small hollow glass capsules with a controlled porous wall. Their team has found a way to place gases, liquids, and solids inside these capsules and control the release of anything inside, on command or slowly over time. And what can they be used for? Potentially revolutionary medical treatments and much, much more. George told us a few other use cases. What's interesting is we started out with radioactive forms of hydrogen, as I mentioned earlier. And so later on here at ARC, what we're doing, focusing more on the next generation, non-radioactive forms, hydrogen. And what is that? Well, those are hydrogen-based vehicles. So we worked several years with Toyota, for example, have new patents with Toyota for new concepts in that particular area. You then innovatively extend it into other areas in the automotive industry. So we also work with other companies, include battery companies, new concepts in uh, lead-acid batteries with a, a major company, and also new concepts in lithium-ion batteries as well. So that's how it extended. And then it extended further. We got into the areas of uh, using the microspheres for some things that probably aren't practical, but kind of neat. Functional fabrics is a, a, a new area, if you would. We work with local companies in South Carolina to see if we can incorporate stuff to combat the Zika virus, some very good local companies, proof of principle things only in that area. But the areas we really have focused in a great deal on has been the area of anti-counterfeiting. 
We were approached at a conference by uh, some professors in South Dakota, and they put a consortium together called SPACT, Security Printing and Anti-Counterfeiting Technologies. And they asked if we can make these microspheres in a way that can incorporate functional materials that can be then activated. Now, why would you do that? Well, counterfeiting in the United States and the world is a $1.8 trillion industry, if it was indeed an industry. So what we've done is to take the microspheres and scoping studies, mix them with different types of security inks to develop new kinds of security inks that then by the equipment and the technology of our colleagues in South Dakota can then be sprayed or impacted upon a surface. And that surface contains microspheres. Some of them contain cargoes that if you try to wipe them out, it releases it. Others will take cargoes that you can activate, if you know what they are, by external means to actually show numbers or a print as well. We have other areas as well that that's extended to a brand new field as well that could be very important. The automotive industry, national defense, forensics. Even though nanotechnology has been around for a while, George and his team have become the go-to source for these microspheres because of their mastery of nano-nothingness. Everybody has heard of nanotechnology, nanostructures, conferences, you get dozens of invites to that and all. But this part of it that's been missing by most of the experts, at least in my opinion, and that's what we call nano-nothingness. And we've sort of specialized in nano-nothingness. And the point is, is that if you can control the porosity of a material on a nanoscale, like the structure on a nanoscale, it affects the properties tremendously. That's what we've seen. So we here at ARC have specialized in nano-nothingness or nano-porosity. And we find that's an important part of almost any of these different projects that we've been part of. So how long have they been working on these? Originally on microspheres was probably 10 years ago, but it stayed in the complex and was not in public uh, for probably uh, three, four years. About 10 years ago, we had our first allowed publication appeared on a, a cover of a magazine. And in it was saying that this is technology, that it's breakthrough technology in the fields of security, environmental remediation and medicine. And then the phone started ringing off the hook. And I was thinking it might be people that wanted to partner with us and had money, 99% of those phone calls was people that wanted free samples. So that didn't quite work out the way we were hoping. How have they been able to keep this development and research process going for so long? ARC's leadership team. I can honestly say that even though we train people before we retired on doing this, a lot of young people, uh, young people are more mobile. Not too many people spend 40 years at a single facility anymore. But the technology, in my opinion, would have died, been completely over. And fortunately, uh, the Applied Research Center is a facility that Fred Humes has put together, and it is just very special to people that do research. Not only research, but also education, where you get a chance to work and mentor with students from literally around the country. This podcast is part of Scribble, South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com. I couldn't help but think about, so I'm a Trekkie, and I couldn't help think about the, the hypo spray from Star Trek when 
George was talking about these microspheres, and in some ways it's potentially relevant, in other ways it's completely wrong, um, or at least as, as far as my non-science brain can, can gather. But like back to that, with, with hyposprays, you, there was this fictional technology where someone could sort of just touch you with the, the spray, and it could deliver to your body medicine. Um, and it's interesting because, and it's, it, I, I don't, you know, I don't always equate things to Star Trek, but I think one of the fascinating things over the last 20 or 30 years is that a lot of the science fiction technology that's depicted in Trek has actually become real. Uh, the communicators, phones, smartphones, things like that. Um, so that's kind of where my brain always goes. Um, but in this case, he, there's, there's a big difference with these microspheres, or at least from what I understand. Um, in, in the hypospray example, someone's activating it and injecting it in you. With these microspheres, there's, there's actually uh, a, a duration of time that, that, that can be controlled. So these microspheres, as I, as I, as I understand it, could be um, printed, let's say, uh, on paper as like a $100 bill. And then at some point in the future, subjected to electricity or some other catalytic agent, and then something will be released or changed. Um, similarly with medicine, it could be injected into a patient, um, and then there might be some time release to that. There might be something that allowed for a very specific delivery of that medicine to certain cells over time, but with some control by some kind of outside agent. Uh, and so it's not just that happens in the moment. Uh, you know, what he's developing is something that where they have complete control over what, when, and what is coming out of these tiny uh, microcapsules. And I think that's the real innovation here, again, as much as my non-science brain can, can understand. So when we say small, how small are we talking? Okay. So I think we're talking the angstrom scale of small, which I, I, I you know, from, from my wiki knowledge is the kind of uh, length that, that is determining the length or wavelength of light. So like really, really small. So an angstrom is one-tenth billionth of a meter. How much Google power did you use for that? A lot. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just wanted to. <laughs> no, 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 that was good. That was good. Yeah. Or, or in more human terms, let's just say that that's about one third of one of the hairs on your head. How do you measure something that small? So ARC has actually got some really amazing even research equipment uh, and specifically to help with this whole microsphere research, uh, Hitachi's next generation cold field emission microscope. There's only a handful of these out there and we've got one right here in Aiken, South Carolina. They have got more than 17,000 square feet of advanced laboratories with things like piped in research gases, high capacity electrical services, temperature humidity control. I mean, they are set up for researchers from industry, academia, and government to come collaborate with them. Now, they also host students, right? Actually, George told us a lot about that. That first or year that we said, well, we may take some students on, we had students writing us from, uh, there was, I think it was three of them from China, uh, from India, even Iraq, and of course, the United States. But we only take on a few students each time. But we work with the students trying to impart on them how to do research, how to do planning of research, how to get results and all. We also sponsor and work with people that come to us working on their master's. We've had two master's thesis. We had PhD thesis students from South Dakota to Virginia Tech to 
oh gosh, Idaho to University of South Carolina. So actually, we had one Nigerian student, very bright young man. Uh, that young man, by the way, had a photographic memory. And working with an old goat like me, where I can't remember I put my car keys the day before, that was a very interesting work period, to say the least. So really bright kids. We sponsor capstone programs. It's one of the best things that I've seen in a lot of college programs, especially those accredited. And what this is is a team of three and four seniors in colleges that do a project for a year, about a year. And so we would have weekly Skype calls with them, and they do just a great job. So it's a great tool for education, passing on knowledge of not just microspheres, but on how to do research. But students aren't the only ones learning at ARC. The business minds behind the organization are greatly impacting George and his fellow scientists. With Fred and the Economic Development Partnership, which is such a critical part of what we're doing, those of us who are in the science field feel pretty good about our field, but we're pretty dumb when it comes to business, let me tell you. <laughs> and so starting business is something we're finding out a lot about. And so we have a business arm with that, with Fred, and we have some of the business leaders in our communities that sit on the board overseeing a lot of the work. So it's a complete package, and it uh, makes it a lot of fun to, to come into work. If you're a student and you're interested in a learning opportunity at ARC or another lab like it, here's what you might take away from the experience. What we are able to do at ARC, again, what Fred has set up this environment, is that they also get something they don't get at the universities. Okay? And what they get is one-to-one -one contact in a laboratory, but also we have lots of visitors coming through, congressional delegations coming through, we have uh, businesses coming through. Every one of our students is required to give a talk. And so what we do is we try to help out, not only in the oral part, and also making opportunities for them to give talks at meetings, but also in the written part. And boy, I tell you, I just take a red pen on, the, on what is done, and so they get to learn what things like cherry boxes are, executive summaries. They get to learn the facts of life in the real world, like if you don't say what you want to say in your 40-page report on the first page, you've lost your manager right off the bat here. So you got to get up front and you got a report is much different than a journal publication. So we try to bring that to them as well. And we've had great responses from the students and especially from the universities as well. For students that want to work here that are in colleges, um, going through their professor is a good way. Sometimes we get direct letters from them. So talking to professors uh, that can be helpful. Just simply writing a letter, Fred Humes is our CEO, going through Fred and then it, it gets to me afterwards. And also, as I, I may have mentioned already, but the capstone programs are really important. And what needs to happen is more industry, by the way, and people that are in our situation need to partner more with universities and to share what they have with universities because there's some missing elements in the educational program of students today, I believe anyway. And I find universities are extremely receptive to something like that. So we have a mutually beneficial thing take place on it. So those are some of the ways to do that. So it's actually really refreshing to hear somebody like a George really prioritize communication skills with his students. Because I feel like, you know, we, we obviously push it a lot with the entrepreneurs, maybe in the business community at large. But for scientists to really be able to communicate and share what it is that they're working on, even outside, especially outside of the scientific field. I mean, I think even just doing this podcast, we've had to really dig through and do a lot of Googling and figuring out what are we talking about? And not to say that it's really important what these people are working on. And so how do we make this accessible to the general audience? Um, 
So this ability, while it might seem simple to be able to effectively communicate, it's really pivotal for innovation to even happen. So like Dr. Desjardins, who talked about how you had to have the skills to be able to uh, pitch, really, and, and unpack your ideas so that others, either on your team or uh, potential funding sources or even uh, uh, consumer applications con- and customers can understand what it is you are wanting to do and what is different about your idea. Um, you know, that's, it's, for, for having all of these very smart people talk, speak to the same concept, um, it, I think it's just great to underscore the importance of, him, of, of communication. And it's something that, you know, I, I've, I try to work at all the time. It's, you know, how can we say something simpler, uh, more straightforward, um, even when you're writing email or any kind of conversation? Can you get to the point and really unpack what you're trying to say succinctly and in a way that is transformative to your audience? With the science behind us, We asked George what the qualities of a good scientist are. You know, I think the single word that I never hear used in science, which to me is critical, is passion. You really got to believe, and it might be kind of idealistic, but you got to really believe that what you're doing is not just writing papers, getting patents, and giving talks and invited talks, a nice ego trip, but what you're doing has a chance at least of impacting the lives of the people around you. And I really, really believe we have that potential. And so getting into these areas and and working, especially in the medical area, you see it perhaps more clearly. And so I never had the problem of running down in that regard or passion and all. I have the problem overextending sometimes as well here. But uh, I I think it's a a personal thing to a lot of people. But best scientists I know of are people that are more interested in the results, how to use the results, and how that other people can profit from them. And so we kind of like to have that as part of our game plan. We'd argue George is a wonderful scientist, but did he always know he wanted to be one? Not really. I knew I was interested in science. I was better at taking things apart than putting them back together again as I grew up here. Uh, As I grew up, I actually believe it or not, at one time was in athletics quite heavy, and that's why I was able to go to college, was because of athletics. I couldn't afford it otherwise. But as you get in and you take different courses and you do different things, I just think science is so exciting. The young people today are just so much brighter than I was growing up, to be honest with you. We didn't have tools like internets. Uh, I talk to our students on a daily basis a lot, and uh, when I talk about a slide rule, you know, it's like a museum piece where all of us had it on our sides that we would have to do. Uh, Students today are so much better prepared. I, I do think there's no substitute for the work ethic, however. And so the, while there's tons of people that are probably a whole lot smarter than people like myself, I make it a policy that not too many people outwork me in a task that's going on. So I think there is no substitute for that. So I expect students to work hard. I expect them to be in before the time, stay later if necessary, uh, put in their own time if they really enjoy what they're doing. And when you do science, you think about it 24-7 times. When I get home uh, and I get up in the morning at 6 in the morning, I put on the TV, I put on my computer, and I'm working. I'm starting, and I'm retired which means I did a really bad job in retiring, I guess. (laughs) But it takes more than hard work to be innovative. 
if you look at the definitions of some of the latest Steve Jobs that you've used on your web pages and Bill Gates and all, I kind of like with my granddaughter uses, and that's Walt Disney. You know, if you can dream it, you can build it or make it as well here. But innovation to me is maybe looking things a little differently than other people look at it. And that different perspective has to extend to your team. To do big changes in technology, it's not just teamwork something more important. It's interdisciplinary teamwork. George even went as far as to say teamwork is his main tool for innovation. Okay, well, the, the one thing that's absolutely critical, number one, is the team. You've got to have the right people, and each person brings something to the table in order to make the, the product even better. So you don't start on something unless you have the right people involved. This next step you do in conducting the research and getting to the product thing is to plan it out. Plan out what you want to do, and then to use all the tools you have available. And those you don't have available, you can either outsource or subcontract out as well. I'm George Wicks, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. And I'm Laura Quarter. Of Note is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Scribble Innovation. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe and rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas. Next time on Of Note. If you think about the future, we're going to have cities that are going to have autonomous cars. We're going to have buildings that are going to sense the way we walk. We're going to have uh, aqueducts that are going to know whether or not the water that you're drinking is safe or not. We're going to have processes in the city that's going to take, for example, food waste and create energy out of that food waste. And all of, all of those things are actually happening here. Here is where we create the knowledge for those things to be possible. And that really is what drives me.